Jesus, only Jesus. Lord, it's true. You're the name above all names. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. And at your name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. And so today we just say, you're our God, you're our King, you're our Lord. You are Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we worship you and we thank you. Amen and amen. Hey, great job, guys, leading us in worship. It's good to see you, and uh, you guys sound awesome this morning singing together. I hope you're having a great day, and uh, we want to just start our worship service off by celebrating together. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10, and we are going to look at a story together this morning. Uh, we're going to look at a story together this morning that's a familiar passage to you probably uh, called the Good Samaritan, and so I want us to take a look at this together. Luke chapter 10, start in verse 25. And Luke writes and says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied to him, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, there are lots of crazy stories in our world about feuding neighbors. Uh, when you think about some stuff, maybe you remember being in high school reading about the Capulets and the Montagues from Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet. Those families kind of hated each other, right? And so it ended up tragically with the death of these two young teenage people who had fallen in love, but their love was forbidden because they were from opposite opposing families. Uh, you can think about them. Uh, the American version of that story would probably be somewhere along the lines of uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? So we got people, where was that, Kentucky? Kentucky folks? All right, y'all killing each other up there. And so uh, you got the Hatfields and the McCoys just feuding. There was a, a documentary, a little miniseries on the History Channel a couple of years ago. I don't know if anybody saw that or not, but it was fascinating. And to be honest, if it was anywhere near half true, those families did not get along at all. They hated each other. It was remarkable to watch the feud that took place between the Hatfields and the McCoys unfold on the History Channel. And so you think about some stories like that, and I'm sure you could probably think of your own renditions or stories about feuding families, people that didn't get along. Uh, there's another story, a group of people that didn't get along that's a little lesser known, but it's the Jews and the Samaritans. And so uh, this is where we find ourselves in the story today, that you've got this story that centers around a Samaritan man. The Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other, uh, and it all stemmed back in history to the year 722 B.C. In 722 B.C., Assyria 
captured the nation of Israel. They overtook the nation of Israel and they dominated them. And what Assyria would do when they would conquer a nation is they would remove the best and the brightest and the most intelligent and take them to the Assyrian Empire. They would also relocate people. So when they conquered Israel, they relocated a lot of the Jews and took them to other areas that Assyria had conquered. What they would also do is take people from those nations that they had previously conquered and re-import them into the, the nation of Israel. And so what you have in, uh, in Samaria are a group of people who are not Jewish but have been placed there by the Assyrians. And so there's a map that I want to show you that kind of shows how this divide works right between northern Israel and southern Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judea, uh, Judah, is Samaria. And so you can see that it's right in the middle. Assyria placed people who were not Israelites, not Jewish, right in the center of the Israelite nation. Over the course of time, what began to happen was Jews would marry these Gentile people that had been brought in. And as they would get married, they would begin having children who were not fully Jews. They were half-breeds, so to speak. And so the Israelites began to despise the half-blood, half-breed Samaritans. And they hated them because the Jews considered themselves to be God's chosen people. They were a holy nation, a holy race. They were supposed to be only themselves. And so what they started to even think about these people was that anyone who was a Samaritan was not just a half-breed, but they also considered them to be demon-possessed. Now, I don't know who your enemies might be or who you would consider to be a kind of a rough crowd, uh, but I bet you don't think of them as being demon-possessed. Uh, the Jews would consider the Samaritans to be demon-possessed people and that they were set away from God. So this is where the feud comes into play, and you can see that right in the middle of the nation of Israel, uh, they would not, Jewish people would not even travel through Samaria. If they were going to go from northern Israel to southern Israel, they would go around Samaria. Or from southern Israel to northern Israel, they would travel around Samaria. In fact, there's a story in Scripture where Jesus, uh, the, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus intentionally went through Samaria. And we know the story of the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman. And Jesus had intentionally gone through Samaria. The Bible references that he went through Samaria intentionally because... They would want us to know and their readers to know that most people would go around that area. But Jesus was different. And that Jesus intentionally went to people that were different from him. And so this kind of brings us to a place that we're going to be looking today and asking some questions about what does Jesus say about what it means to be a neighbor. Now we're finishing a series today called The Ultimate Jesus. And we've been talking for the first few weeks about Jesus as the ultimate servant. We recognized our uh, civil servants, our firefighters, policemen, EMS, those kinds of folks. And last week we talked about Jesus as the ultimate teacher. We uh, recognized our teachers last week and uh, specifically our partnership with John Sevier Middle School. And we had teachers here last week with us and, and prayed over them and recognized them. Today we want to talk about what it looks like for Jesus to be the ultimate neighbor. And if Jesus is the ultimate neighbor, what does that mean for us as followers of Christ? And so uh, we see this today and we kind of go, all right, if the Jews and Samaritans would avoid one another, if the Jews would walk around Samaria, to what lengths have you ever found yourself going to avoid someone, to avoid a neighbor, to avoid a person that has caused you harm in the past, that's done something to you, that you just disagree with, that you don't like? What have you ever done? Maybe you would consider yourself to be a good neighbor. Maybe you say, you know what, I get along with my neighbors. I'm a good neighbor. All of us at some point could probably say, I've got some room to improve in being a neighbor. And so if that's you today, we want to just look at some things in Scripture to talk about what does it look like when Jesus says 
that we should be a good neighbor. Uh, actually, the conversation doesn't begin on being a good neighbor. It starts out with a question of salvation. And so if you look back at the passage, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Now, the lawyer comes to Jesus, and he asks this question, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, immediately, if you kind of look at this with any kind of skepticism, you'll see this is really not a good question at all. Because what can anyone do to inherit anything? An inheritance in and of itself is something that's left to someone by either a family member because of the relationship you have, that they've died or gone on, and they've left you something. Or it's a generous gift from someone that just wants to bless someone else, and they leave it as an inheritance. This happens sometimes in uh, nonprofit organizations or with churches and things like that where someone will die and they'll leave a generous gift. Maybe they leave a, a property or a, a benevolent gift to the, to the church or the organization. And so you see those kinds of things happening. Not because the organization did anything, but because someone was generous with their wealth. Not because someone did anything, but because they were related to a family member who left them a gift of an inheritance. And so the lawyer says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Which clues us in on this man's mentality, right? It shows us that his thinking is, I can earn my way and be good enough on my own standards, my own accord, to get to heaven for eternity. That's his thought process. That he thinks that he can earn his way to be with God. That there's something he can do to get there. And so he asks this question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't just answer him. He doesn't say, if you do this, 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 and this, then you'll get there. He says, well, you're a teacher of the law. What do you think that the law says? How do you interpret it? Jesus turns the question back to the man. This would have been uh, a popular way of, of discussing or dialogue in the first century. Someone would ask a question of a teacher. A teacher would ask a rebuttal question and make you think. And then you might either answer that or ask another follow-up question. And it would go back and forth. It's like playing ping pong, right? So we're just back and forth and back and forth until finally somebody would just answer. So this man says, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you've read the law. What do you think it says? And he answers. He says, I think the law teaches us that if we love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and if we love our neighbors ourselves, that's what we have to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus actually says, you know what? You're right. If you do that, then you'll inherit eternal life. And we look at that and go, man, that's awesome. I, so I can earn my way to God. I can get there on my own of power. That's what this man says. If I keep the law completely, then I'll get there. And a lot of us might go, I can do that. Well, there's a problem. You can't do that. No one could do that. No one has ever loved God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength all of the time. Because we're sinful people who have fallen away from God. Because we're broken by the damaging effects of sin. You can't love God with everything you have. And let's say you could do that part. Let's say you make it to where you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Then there's a second commandment that he throws in there. He says, and you have to love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to love myself pretty well. I take care of myself. I do things for myself. I watch out for myself, right? And you do the same thing. And it's okay for you to admit that you do that. 
uh, that you love yourself, that you take care of yourself. Uh, I remember when we lived in Dallas, we were uh, in seminary, and then I had a church there. And, and while we were there, the Dallas Cowboys, you can't live in Dallas and not hear about the Dallas Cowboys. You can try to not hear about the Dallas Cowboys and still hear about the Dallas Cowboys. That's just how it works in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Well, while we were there, the Dallas Cowboys signed wide receiver Terrell Owens to a contract. Does anybody remember when this happened? Sports fans out there. And so Terrell Owens, he was the enemy, right? He had played for the San Francisco 49ers, a rival to the Dallas Cowboys. Terrell Owens, as a member of the San Francisco 49ers, had caught a touchdown pass in Dallas Stadium and ran to the middle of the stadium and spiked the ball on the hallowed star in the middle of the field of Dallas Cowboys Stadium, to which Emmett Smith pounded him right in the chest. Knocked him to the ground, right? These people hated each other. But all of a sudden, the Dallas Cowboys signed Terrell Owens to a contract to become the wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. In his opening press conference, they were asking questions of Terrell Owens. And at some point, somebody asked him about himself. What do you think about yourself? Do you think you're a good football player? Terrell Owens' response was, I love me some me. I love me some me. Terrell Owens is about me. I love me. I'm all about me. It is cool to be me. You would want to be me too if you could be me because I am rich and crazy and famous and all this kind of stuff. He goes, I love me some me. And if we're honest, all of us would say that. I, I love me. I take care of me. I feed me. I clothe me. I go to the store for me. I do things for me. I buy stuff for me. Right? I, I'm all about me. I am. And you are too. And yet Jesus says you have to love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. And all of a sudden, we're looking around at each other and going, I don't know that I really do that very well. I don't find myself taking care of my neighbor the same way that I take care of myself. I mean, I take care of me. I don't take care of my neighbor. How many of you pay for your own vacations? How many of you would like to pay for your neighbor's vacation? How many of you pay for your wardrobe? How many of you would like to pay for your neighbor's wardrobe? Some of you might be like, it would help them if I paid for my neighbor. I don't know. Uh, how many of you, I mean, you do think, how many of you feed yourselves? You buy, buy your food. How many of you... Feed your neighbors multiple times a day all year long, right? Like you don't do that for your neighbor. You take care of you. And you kind of expect your neighbor to take care of themselves. That's how we think. That's how we're ingrained. And so Jesus says you want to inherit eternal life. You've got to love God with everything you've got all the time. And you've got to take care of your neighbor the same way you take care of them. You've got to love them the same way you love you. Now, all of a sudden, when we think about this, I imagine that the lawyer is kind of going, you know what? I know the law. I'm a follower of God. I am a, a, a Pharisee. I, am, I know this stuff backwards and forwards. I imagine in his heart he has told himself and convinced himself that he's doing a really great job in his vertical relationship with God. I imagine this man who knew the law backward and forward and who made every bit of his life about obeying the law. I imagine if you asked him, hey, how are you doing? Keeping the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. He would probably say, I'm doing good. I love God. I'm doing everything I can for God. I would imagine he has convinced himself, I've got that part right. The vertical relationship, me and God, I've got that part right. But he seems to be a little sketchy about this love your neighbor as you love yourself thing. Because he asks Jesus a question in response. And so he says this in Luke chapter 10, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? Okay, Jesus, if I already love God with everything I've got, and you're telling me that to get to heaven and earn my way to heaven, I need to love my neighbor with everything I've got, let's clarify. Tell me who my neighbor is. 
Because if you point to that person and this person and that one over there and say, those are your neighbors, then I will do everything I can for those people. I will meet my neighbor's needs. You just tell me who is my neighbor. But the lawyer doesn't understand that he's incapable of practicing unqualified love for God and unqualified love for his neighbor. And I'm curious, have we figured that out yet? I just imagine that there's possibly some people in here who are still trying to do this whole thing that the, the Pharisee was doing, the lawyer was doing, trying to earn your way to heaven because you think that you've done enough, that you've been good enough, that you love God enough, that you're trying hard enough, that your good outweighs your bad. So surely when you die and you stand in front of God and He says, why should you get eternity with me? And you say, well, because I was a good person. I did way more good than I ever did bad. And you're trying to qualify these things. I imagine there are some of us here today that are still trying to live like this lawyer. You're pretty sure you're doing good enough, but to make it to heaven isn't based on how good you're doing. And so Jesus starts to clarify what the lawyer should have sought at this point. What he should have asked Jesus was, I need help. Is there a way that God will get me to heaven? Not what do I do to inherit it? What do I do to earn it? Is there a way? Because I can't keep these standards. Is there a way that God will approve of me and accept me and bring me to heaven with Him? He wanted to, if you look at the, the verse, verse 29, He wanted to justify Himself. That word justify in this book, Kenneth Bailey, he's thinking about these things in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Kenneth Bailey said this, to be justified in biblical language means to be granted the status of one whom God accepts as he stands before God. This fellow, desiring to justify himself, is clearly a person who wants to achieve acceptance before God on his own. So you see this guy. And Luke tells us, this man wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make himself right with God, rather than God doing the work to make the man right with him. He wanted to justify himself. How do I get me to God? Tell me what I need to do. Let me justify myself. I'll figure it out. But our lawyer friend, he can't imagine. He can't imagine needing God's help to get there. He thinks it's all about what he can do. He can't imagine asking God for help. If only he could figure out this one question. Who's my neighbor? And so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who exactly am I supposed to love? If you're taking notes this morning, I'd like to encourage you to write down a couple of things. Or if you like to do it digitally, you can use the Version app. There's a place there on the live events that you can keep up with our notes. But here's the first thing that we see. He's asking Jesus, who exactly am I supposed to love? Now, the question behind the question is, how little can I do and still achieve my goal? If you'll tell me, who are the minimal people that I need to love? Who are the neighbors? You point to the four or five or six people. The minimal requirement of what I need to do to love my neighbor as I love myself, I'll do those things. And so the lawyer is asking for and looking for minimal obedience. That's what he's after. Jesus, you tell me the minimal requirements of what I have to do to be a good neighbor and I'll do those things. But yet Jesus is looking for and requires absolute obedience. He says, you've got to follow the law. It's love the Lord your God with everything you have. And love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. To put their needs above your own needs. That you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus requires absolute obedience. So to answer the man's question, who's my neighbor? Jesus begins telling a story. And it's a story we're all familiar with. I imagine that you've probably read this quite a lot. And so Luke chapter 10 
in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him, Jesus said. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Now let's talk about the backstory just a little bit. Jericho to Jerusalem. says the man was walking from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's about a 17-mile stretch. And it's a particularly difficult and treacherous terrain. If you were to go there today, you could still see that there are caves and mountains and all kinds of things around that area. Clefts in the rock and to hide in. And what would happen is bandits and gangs and thieves would hide out in those clefts and those uh, caves and in the rocks. And people who were traveling down that road they would jump out and they would rob, and they would steal from them. Historically, people tell us that if you didn't fight back, if you just gave up your possessions, they would traditionally leave you alone. But if you fought for what you had and wanted to keep it for yourself instead of letting the robbers take it from you, that they were notoriously famous for beating people. And that's apparently what happened to this man. As Jesus tells the story to his audience, and he puts them in an everyday situation of walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, he says, this is what happens. The man's walking through there, and he starts to get robbed. And apparently he fights back, and this gang of thieves beats him. And they strip him of his clothes, they wound him, and they leave him naked and half dead on the side of the road. And so immediately your audience would take pity on this man to go, we've seen probably that happen, that's not an uncommon occurrence, we know exactly what you're talking about. Somebody now needs to help this guy, somebody needs to do something for this guy. And so Jesus introduces two new characters to the story. He says, first a priest came along. And everybody would probably have cheered and clapped and said, great, the priest is here, he's going to do something. The priest is a religious leader for the people. He's the one that offers sacrifices on behalf of the sins of the people, who serves at the temple and acts as an intermediary between God and man. And so the priest would have come along and, and he sees this man laying half dead and naked on the side of the road. And the Bible says, and Jesus tells the story, that the man just crossed to the other side and walked around. And he left him. And then, shortly after that, Another man enters the story, and Jesus says there was also a Levite who came along. Now, Levites were the worship leaders. They were the ones who would bring people into the presence of God through worship, through exaltation of God's truth, and through singing music. And so when the crowd hears this, they go, this guy, this is a religious person, this is a worship leader for our nation, surely he's going to stop and do something. And Jesus says the Levite comes, and he just walks along on the other side of the road, and he still leaves the man there, naked and bleeding and bruised and half dead. Now, we look at that and go, why in the world? How could that possibly happen? And yet you think about it, and, and in this context, the priest who would have been on his way to Jerusalem probably to serve at the temple, the priest would serve two-week time spans where they would give their time to serve at the temple during the year. This was probably his one chance to go and serve at the temple. As a temple priest, he would offer sacrifices for the people. He would collect money that he would take in as an offering. He would redistribute money to the poor. He would be responsible through the offerings and the sacrifices that were made when people would bring their lambs or their doves to act as a sacrifice to God. He would be, as the priest, responsible for taking a portion of that meat 
and giving part of it as a sacrifice, but also distributing it to his servants and to his family. That would have been a way that they made their income as a priest, to have food for themselves and for their servants. And so for him to touch a dead body, the Bible tells us in the law that for a priest to touch a dead body would make him unclean. That he would be disqualified from serving at the temple during that period of time. That it would take him a period of a week or longer to go through the ritual of being purified to make clean again. So when he sees this man who's naked, there's no distinguishing marks to say if he's an Israelite or a Samaritan or a Gentile or whatever, uh, that he is not required by the law to help a non-Jew. So this man on his way to the temple just passes by because he says, if I touch him, I'm unclean. I can't do my job. I don't know if he's dead or alive. I'm not going to go there. I don't even know if he's a Jew or not. So I'm not obligated by the law to help. So he passes on by. The Levite in the same manner, walking the same road, probably would have known as they're going to the temple to serve that a priest had been in front of him. And and as he comes across the body, same type of thing. He could be disqualified for service. And his thought process is somewhere along the lines of, well, if the priest didn't do anything, I'm not greater than the priest. And if he knew the law better than I know the law, I'm not obligated to help this man. So the Levite just continues on his way. And he goes to the temple to serve. And then Jesus enters a third person into the story. And if you remember, we talked about at the beginning how despised and hated the Samaritans were, that they were considered to be uh, demon-possessed half-breeds. And Jesus says, and then finally, a Samaritan came along. And you can just imagine the tension in the crowd, the sneering, the hate. This would be a lot like saying, and then someone from a radical terrorist group with ISIS came along and entered the scene. And every one of us would go, not him, Don't let it be Him. Anybody but Him, right? We don't want that guy, our enemy, the villain. We don't want Him helping. And that's exactly where Jesus puts His audience. He says, a Samaritan came along, and He saw the man, and He took pity on him. And He went to him, He bandaged his wounds, and He cleaned him up, and He put the man on His own donkey, and He took him to an inn where He paid for His medical expenses, where He spent the night with Him, where He gave of His time, to stay and treat the man and take care of him. And the next day, he left word with the innkeeper to say, I'm going to go away, but I'll return. Here's money to take care of his needs, and if you incur more expense than what I'm leaving you, when I come back, I'll settle the debt. And Jesus makes the hero of the story the hated Samaritan. And so you see all of this unfold. And at the end of the story, as Jesus talks through all of these things, I can just imagine that the crowd goes through some emotion. Probably the first is anger. Why would this guy, why would the Samaritan be the one that Jesus pins to help the guy? So there's anger. Then there's probably a second emotion of shame. Just go, you know what? It's shameful that our guys didn't do something and that the Samaritan did. And so Jesus now starts to talk to the priest again, and he's going to ask him another question. But before that, I want to look at a quote by Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King said this, thinking about this story, reflecting on this story. He said, The first question that the priest and the Levite asked was, If I stop to help, what will happen to me? While the first question the Samaritan asked was, If I don't stop to help, what will happen to him? And so you can see the mentality. As Dr. Martin Luther King says these things, he says that the priest and the Levi, they look at this man in need and they go, if I stop and help him, what's going to happen to me? The law is going to disqualify me from service. I'm not going to be able to be pure and clean and do my job. What's going to happen to me? It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take energy. It's going to take money. What's going to happen to me if I help him? Jesus, or Martin Luther King says when the Samaritan comes along, 
His question is, if I don't do something, what's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to the man laying beaten and half dead on the side of the road? If I don't do something and step in and help. And so Jesus looks at the lawyer and he says, what, who do you think in the story is a neighbor? Who do you think in the story does this? And the lawyer has to confront this issue. And when we see someone in need, when we think about who would help, what's your first thought? Is your first thought when you see people in need, gosh, if, if I stop and do something, what's that going to cost me or what's it going to do to me? Or when you see someone in need, do you say, if I don't do something, what's going to happen to them? We think about how it could drain our time. We think about how it may cost us financially to help someone in need. We think about how maybe it relationally will be awkward for us in some things. What if, what if some of your fin, friends drive by while you're helping a homeless person on the side of the road and they see you out there and, and they don't know what's going on and, or they see you pick up that guy in your truck and take him to lunch? Relationally, that could be awkward. What if you want to just do one simple small thing and you're going to give financially to somebody and say, hey, here's $5, I want to help you out. But then the next thing you know, they're, they've got another need and it's a greater need and they're asking you for it. And now you kind of feel like, well, am I obligated to help this person? What am I supposed to do with the greater need? And it's always a more need and a greater need. And it's always going to be more financially and I've got to give more to this. What do I do? Or your time. I mean, there are people who are on their way. The Samaritan was probably a businessman who was on his way somewhere. And he had to stop and spend an extra night to take care of this man's needs. So what about your time? Is it going to cost you time to stop and help somebody? Maybe you think, it, gosh, I just don't have an extra 30 minutes. I don't have an extra hour to give. I don't have an extra five minutes. My schedule is so busy, so full. I can't stop and do something. And yet when we see people in need around us, do we ever ask ourselves, if I don't do something, what's going to happen to them? What would happen to them? And so Jesus goes through all of these things and the story bothers the lawyer and you can tell that when Jesus asked which of the men was the neighbor to the man the lawyer doesn't even say the Samaritan you can tell it bothers him because he doesn't say ah, the Samaritan he says I suppose the one who showed mercy and Jesus says that's right you should go and do the same go and do likewise be the kind of person who will show mercy to those who are in need. Be the kind of person who will give of yourself. Jesus is the ultimate neighbor. Because when he looks at this story, and he says, who is the neighbor of this man? Which one is the neighbor? The one who showed mercy. Jesus elevated that Samaritan to neighbor status. Jesus is the ultimate neighbor because he elevates everyone to neighbor status. Jesus takes everyone and says, everyone's your neighbor. This guy wants to qualify. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus basically says, everybody. I'm not going to select three or four people and say, if you do nice things for those three, your neighbors, your physical neighbors, your proximity neighbors, your neighbors that live at the houses right around you, because I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to tell you that everybody's your neighbor. So love everyone the same way you love yourself. Jesus says, hey, look, are they breathing? Are they alive? Then they're your neighbor. Jesus is not as concerned about proximity as he is about life, right? And so when Jesus starts talking about these things, he says, you want to know who your neighbor is? You want to know who you should love? Look for people with breath in their lungs. They're your neighbor. And it doesn't matter what, who they are, what they do, their background. Jesus doesn't ask to qualify those things. 
So when we look at our life, we say, okay, our neighbor, our neighbor may be the gay rights activist. Our neighbor may be the person who's a non-Christian. Our neighbor may be the person who's the office jerk. The person in your life that's the constant gossip. The person who is so politically far to the right or to the left that they drive you crazy. They're your neighbor. Jesus looks at this and says, everybody, the bully at school, it's your neighbor. The person who's done harm to you in your past, they're your neighbor. And our job, our goal as followers of Christ is to be the kind of people who can look at neighbors and say, I want to move toward them, not with judgmentalism, not with condemnation, but with mercy. Because that's what the lawyer said about the Samaritan. The one who showed mercy was a good neighbor. And so when we look at this story, we see that Jesus is telling us that everyone is our neighbor. If following Jesus makes everyone our neighbor, then Christians should lead the way in building relational bridges across racial, religious, and cultural lines. That should be what, we, what the heart of our, our life is as followers of Christ. Now let me add a disclaimer to that. That does not mean that you have to agree with everything that everybody does in order to love them. It doesn't mean that you have to embrace their lifestyle in order to love them. You can disagree with a person's lifestyle and still show them mercy and still show them the love of God. You can disagree with a person's habits, with a person's behavior. You can disagree with the things that they do and still love them and show them mercy. And we should be able to do that as followers of Christ. We should be able to distinguish those things. And say, I don't agree with you and it's okay for me to tell you up front and to your face that I don't agree with you. But it doesn't mean I have to stop being kind to you, being loving to you, being merciful to you, treating you as a neighbor. Because that's what I'm called to do as a follower of Christ. And so when Jesus tells us these things, He reminds us that the characteristic the lawyer said about the Samaritan that set him apart was that he showed mercy. And Jesus says to us then, go and do likewise. Show mercy. And so this morning as we start to think about how, to, how this applies to us, I would just say to us, listen, we need to do those same things. Show mercy. Don't judge. Show mercy. Wear the love of Jesus everywhere you go. Uh, James was Jesus' half-brother. He wrote a book in the New Testament called James. Pretty awesome, right? And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, I'm sure he picked up on this teaching as he spent time with his brother. And James writes and reflects in James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you're convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. So he says, listen, we can't, be about showing favoritism. We can't look at one section of people, one subgroup of the population, one individual person, and, and show favoritism against them and towards someone else. He says, you love everybody. You show mercy to everybody. You be a neighbor to everybody. That's what we're called to do. And so as we close this up this morning, I want to give us three things to look at. How can I grow to be a neighbor and be a good neighbor? So here's the sticking points to being a good neighbor. Number one, look to meet real Physical needs first. That's the starting point of being a good neighbor. This is a statement we make around here occasionally. We say that love needs hands and feet. Uh, love needs hands and feet. You can't just tell somebody you love them. Sometimes you need to show people you love them. It's one thing for me to tell my wife and my kids I love them. It's another thing for me to do something for them that shows that love. 
to do the dishes, to clean the house, to take my kids out in the yard and play football when it's 105 degrees outside. Like those are the kinds of things that show love. Love needs hands and feet. To be a good neighbor, you need to look for the needs around you and learn to meet those needs. That's what it means to be a neighbor, to put hands and feet behind your love. And so we need to look for ways to meet real physical needs. This is what the Samaritan did. The Samaritan didn't have a questionnaire to go, okay, let me, while you're bloody and beating there on the side of the road, let me ask you, are you a Samaritan? No, okay, that's a check against you. Uh, do you have any money? No, that's a check against you. He doesn't have a questionnaire to say, if you answer some questions right, I'll help you. He just sees a need and he goes and meets a need. He looks for a way to meet a literal physical need. And he steps up to it. And we should be the same way. One of the announcements Brian made at the beginning of the service was that our church is getting ready to host Family Promise again. I love this ministry that we're a part of, that we have families who come here who are in transition from being homeless and are trying to find housing for them and their family, and that we have an opportunity to host them in our church and to provide meals for them and, and to love them and, and just to be here for them. They say, we want to meet a physical need you have. You need a place to stay? We have a church. It's got showers. It's got kitchens. It's got everything you can use. Here's a place to, to live. For, for this week, while you're in this ministry, while you're in this organization, and we meet a physical need. There's so many other ways we've done that. The mission trip to Kentucky this summer that our students and, and uh, parents went on that just met physical needs. All the things that we can do around our community to meet needs, that's the starting point. Maybe your literal neighbor, the one that lives in the house right beside you, maybe they have a physical need. Maybe you see their yard hasn't been mowed in two weeks, and it's okay for you to go and mow their yard. Go take care of that need. Meet the physical needs. That's number one. Here's number two. Don't be afraid to risk on behalf of someone else. Don't be afraid to take a risk on behalf of someone else. Black, white, yellow, red, it doesn't matter, rich or poor, gay or straight, Christian or non-Christian. When we learn to see people as being made in the image of Christ, and when we understand that Jesus, the ultimate neighbor, elevated everyone around us to neighbor status, and we learn to meet the needs of people and show love and compassion to them. That's the very center of the heart of Christ. He's the ultimate neighbor. I love this thought that Jesus, as God, left his heavenly neighborhood. And to show us how much he loved us, he moved into ours. And he literally became our neighbor. He literally became someone who lived among us. The Bible says that he tabernacled with us. That means he made his dwelling with us. John chapter 1 in the message translation says it this way. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory of God with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous, inside and out, true from start to finish. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. So don't be afraid to take a risk on behalf of someone else. Here's the next one, the last one. Place importance on individual people. Place importance on individual people. I love to coach my kids' teams, and soccer has been one of the things that I've enjoyed the most. And uh, First day of practice with my, my son. He's six years old. I've coached him as a five-year-old, now as a six-year-old. And First day of practice, the kids are running around the field, and everybody's going crazy and having a good time, and they've got their brand-new cleats on and shin guards and a little soccer ball, and they're just running around, kicking each other as much as they're kicking the ball. It's just crazy chaos all over the place. And when you finally kind of wrangle them all in and go, okay, guys, everybody in, let's just talk for a minute. The first question I love to ask these little kids as they're starting to learn how to play soccer is, hey, what's the most important thing on the field? What's the most important thing on the field? And every time, it's the ball. The ball is the most important thing on the field. 
Oh, the goal, the goal. That's the most important thing on the field. We've got to kick the ball into the goal. It's the most important thing on the field. Oh, the boundary lines. We need to know when we're out of bounds and when we're inbounds. It's like most of the time you're out of bounds. You need to stay inbounds, right? And so uh, they, they just start talking about all these things. These are the important things on the field. And I love it, I love it, I love it. Get to call the kids in closer. Just go, hey, guys, come here. I want to tell you something. The most important thing on the field is people. It's you. It's our teammates. It's the team we're going to play against. They are the most important thing on the field. You've got to learn to see people as the most important thing in your life. And make individuals the most important thing. If you can do that, you will raise them to that elevated neighbor status. This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus made everybody around him feel like the most important person in the room. See, it's your job. More important than the deadline that you have is the people that you're working with. More important than the paycheck that you're going to earn is the people that you're working with. More important than your competitors and how you're going to get a leg up on them is their actual lives. More important than anything else that you're going to do in your home to get it clean, to keep it nice, to have dinner ready, is your family. You make individuals the most important people. And one of the things that we've got to learn to do, especially as followers of Christ, is not to place people in lumps where we say everybody that is this does this. When we start to find ways to stereotype people and when we look at clumps of people and we say if you wear this, you do this. If you have this color skin, then you're this. Every time we do that, we stop looking like the heart of Christ. We need to look at individual people and know that every single person is created in the image of God. That every single person has the glory of God in their life on display. And that they have value and worth in the heart of God. The same way that you and I have value and worth in the heart of God. Jesus showed us that. He showed you how important you are. He showed me how important I am when he moved into the neighborhood. And when he said, I'm going to make my dwelling here with you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take the punishment you deserve so that you don't have to experience that from God. And Jesus, the God-man, God in flesh, became our neighbor. And he elevated every person on the, on the planet to neighbor status with you and with me. So our question, where we need to land, is if Jesus is the ultimate neighbor, if he can do that for us, what can we do for others in his name? That's the question we need to ask. And that's the question we need to answer as we learn what it means to be a great neighbor. Pray together. Well, Father, I just confess to you that I don't always love you with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength, all my soul. And that I don't love my neighbors the way that I love myself. And very often I fail that so miserably. And yet, God, I'm so thankful for grace and for mercy that says that we're not trying to earn our salvation by doing those things. That we're, we're not going to make it to heaven based on if we do all of those things perfectly every time. I'm thankful for grace, Jesus, that you said, I'll show you the way. I'll, I'll become the way for you. That you became the bridge for us. You bridged the neighborhood of heaven to the neighborhood of earth and showed us how to walk across to get from here to the Father. And I'm, I'm so thankful for that. And God, I just pray that today you would help us to understand more of what it means to be 
a good neighbor and how to live our lives under the Lordship of Christ, how to elevate people to the status where we don't consider anyone better or worse than us, but that we look at everyone and say they're important and valued in the eyes of God. So, Father, we just pray that you would show us what it means to live this way, to make every person important, and to give of ourselves in others because of the mercy and grace that's been shown to us. We love you and ask these things in your name. Thank you.